0: Welcome to Hollywood, the podcast that explores the lives of history's greatest storytellers. In Hollywood, the author is the true star, and as we'll hear, their lives are often filled with as much drama, mystery, and tragedy as the books they wrote. I'm your host, Key Whiskey, and today we begin a new series called Writers Under the Influence, featuring authors whose lives and careers are in the popular imagination, entangled with their relationships to substances. The cases of addiction we'll cover range from the casual, amusing, and merely experimental to the lifelong, heartbreaking, and disastrous. Some authors were able to defeat their addictions, and in other cases, their addictions defeated them. Throughout modern history, there has been an ongoing public debate on whether or not drugs for artists, a performance enhancing or performance debilitating? The question posed is whether or not certain great artists would have been so great without the assistance of drugs, as if talent and creativity could be mined from drugs like oil from a well. A better question might be, would an artist's life and career have unfolded much differently had they remained stone-cold sober? Or a more disheartening question, Could an artist have achieved more, reached greater summits if they had never used drugs at all?
1: See this cute little vial here? It's crack, rock cocaine. But not only are barbiturates dangerous to his nervous system, but they destroy the inner resources. This is your brain on drugs.
0: But the grim spectres of heroin, marijuana and cocaine... Oh,
1: devil ether. Burning weed with its roots in hell. hell.
0: Here to launch us into the season with a little bit of a kick is our friend Charlie, also known as Blow, nose candy, snow, the big rush, Bolivian marching powder. Official name? Cocaine. It's the glamorous rich man's drug often associated with money, power and success. Sherlock Holmes famously called it his
1: 7 percent solution
0: and injected it into his arm. Sigmund Freud initially sang its praises and experimented its functions on himself, even gifting some to his fiance before reportedly stopping all use and retracting his endorsement in 1896. Cocaine and its boosting effects was also an inspiration behind the 2011 movie Limitless, starring Bradley Cooper as a struggling author with chronic writer's block who takes a fictional brain-enhancing drug and writes an entire book in four days. Cocaine has been used and abused by many since it first burst onto the pharmaceutical scene almost 140 years ago. Initially as a medical marvel, a local anesthetic deployed in dentistry and minor operations. But by the time the jazz age hit in a roaring whirlwind of musicians, flappers, and all-round hard partiers, recreational use of cocaine far outpaced medicinal. The decades rolled on Cultural movements came and went, and the war on drugs waged and waned. But still, cocaine subsisted, its popularity remaining steady right up to the new millennium, proving its staying power is as potent as its highly addictive psychostimulant effects. The two authors I'm going to spotlight in today's episode bookend what could be considered the century of cocaine. It's a narcotic the authors themselves are known to have used, coincidentally during periods of immense productivity, and the parallels don't end there. Both men made their careers with shilling shockers or dime novels, derogatory terms used for sensational stories of horror and violence, printed on cheap paper and often dismissed by the literary establishment. Both men solidified their best-seller statuses with dark, profound, and wildly popular horror tales about a protagonist with dual personalities, and both authors credited the ideas for these tales to their nightmares. I'm talking about Robert Louis Stevenson, author of The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, published in 1886, and Stephen King, author of The Shining, published in 1977. Robert Louis Stevenson, who I will refer to as RLS, was born an only child into a respectable, middle-class family in Edinburgh, Scotland in 1850, just nine years before a German chemist first successfully isolated and extracted cocaine from coca leaves. His parents were Isabella and Thomas. Thomas took after his father, RLS's grandfather, working as a pioneering lighthouse engineer who oversaw the construction of many lighthouses across the country, including the famous Bell Rock Lighthouse. Bell Rock remains standing off the rocky east coast of Scotland even today, poised atop a treacherous sandstone reef. At 208 years old, it is the world's oldest surviving sea-washed lighthouse. Unfortunately, RLS was a sickly child who inherited from his mother a, quote, weak chest which caused him lifelong troubles of illness, emaciation and respiratory problems. He was especially prone to coughs and fevers, which were exacerbated in damp and chilly weather. Under doctor's orders, the Stevensons moved to and fro across the United Kingdom and Europe, seeking out warmer climates during the worst of the winter months and giving the boy a taste of travel. Yet little RLS continued to fall ill over and over again. From age 6 to 11. Most historians declare that RLS suffered from tuberculosis, a highly contagious disease that damages the lungs and sometimes spreads to other parts of the body. However, more recent research acknowledges the possibility he had a different, albeit similar condition, such as sarcoidosis, a kind of mimic of tuberculosis. In any case, RLS developed an awareness of human frailty and mortality at an unusually early age, even for this pre-antibiotic Victorian time. It is rather miraculous he survived his childhood at all. That is, if you consider being confined to the sickbed, a childhood. RLS spent his youth housebound and lonely, left with little more than his imagination to depend upon for adventure and fun. He couldn't go to school, so gleaned most his learning from a private tutor and regular trips abroad. As far as family lives go, RLS led a rather charmed one. He was deeply loved and well cared for. Most of the care, however, came not from his mother, but by way of a live-in nurse, Alison Cunningham, one of the most influential women in RLS's life. The Calvinist religiosity of the Stevenson family was no match for this fire and brimstone Christian who administered the fear of damnation to her young charge along with cough syrups and poultices. Though tender and faithful, Alison was intense to say the least. She instilled in RLS an extreme terror of hell. For example, Alison believed playing cards were the product of the devil and taught young RLS to pray fervently for his parents' souls to be spared after she learnt that his parents liked to play cards. With her potent mix of hell and damnation, along with biblical stories and Scottish folklore, it comes as no surprise RLS was kept up at night, as much by his nightmares as his hacking cough. Many historians speculate that RLS's poor health access to his father's library and his nurse's thrilling stories may have contributed to his burgeoning imagination and writing talents later in life. Had his constitution been more robust, RLS may have followed in his father's engineering footsteps and never pursued a creative career, never become the great author we know today. Unfortunately for Thomas Stevenson, a future as a celebrated engineer is exactly what he wanted for his one and only son. Thomas didn't mind RLS's love of writing. Indeed, it was because of Thomas that RLS saw his first piece published as a pamphlet at 16. At his father's urging, the precocious teen wrote a historical romance set during a 17th century battle that took place not far from where the Stevensons were living at the time. Thomas liked it so much, he had 100 copies printed and circulated. Still, in Thomas's eyes, Writing was a hobby and not a career. So when RLS turned 17 and started to make dramatic improvements in his health, he was packed off to Edinburgh University to study engineering. To put it bluntly, university was a lost cause and RLS knew it ahead of time. Fresh off the experience of his first publication, RLS had well and truly fallen under the spell of language. University was no more than a place where RLS could play truant, or hooky as is the American term, more than student. He kept two books in his pockets at all times, one for reading, the other to write in. He raided the university library and fell for Walt Whitman, Shakespeare, Horace, and Michel de Montaigne. He dabbled in a bit of drama, perhaps to balance out the more difficult engineering subjects he was having to take, and joined the Speculative Society, a long-standing, exclusive debate and social club, not unlike a fraternity or brotherhood. Each week, the Spec Society's 30 or so members met in a Turkish-carpeted, wood-panelled and fire-warmed hall within the university to critically read essays and discuss ideas. But it wasn't all work and no play. RLS later described the Spec Society's headquarters as a place where a young man could go to laze about, read, and in defiance of campus authorities, proudly smoke pipes. A few notable members included political activist Benjamin Constant and the great historical author Sir Walter Scott. RLS relished his time with the Speculative Society calling it, quote,
1: the best thing in Edinburgh,
0: and even contributed to their short-lived campus-circulated magazine. RLS was, much to his father's disappointment, putting more effort into his membership at the Spec Society than his own studies. Though a pretty lousy academic student, he was a devoted student of Bohemia, or what we call today a full-on hipster. He started wearing a wide-brimmed hat, a cravat, and a velvet coat, even earning for himself the nickname Velvet Coat. He was still very lean and wore his hair long, almost down to his shoulders, which exacerbated his gaunt face. He had a face quite like contemporary actor Adrian Brody, with wide-set dark eyes and a brilliant smile. And when his thin fingers weren't holding a cigarette, they were twirling the ends of his moustache. RLS grew close with his cousin Bob, an art critic, who had also rejected his parental expectations to go into the family business. Together, the young rebels trawled the less-than-reputable Old Town districts of Edinburgh, smoking, drinking, chasing girls, visiting brothels, and hanging out in graveyards. On holidays between university terms, or semesters, RLS travelled the country under the guise of inspecting his family's numerous lighthouses for the purposes of engineering research. Instead, All this did was plant a seed of wanderlust in the young man and provide him more material for his writing. A trend began. Like a Victorian travel blogger, each new location visited gave RLS another bit of writing inspiration. RLS's interest in engineering fizzled out as his mind filled with fancies and curiosities about human nature and the world. It was the writer's life he wanted to follow. He eventually worked up the courage to declare to his father he had no intention to join the family firm, a bombshell which no doubt shattered Thomas Stevenson's paternal dreams. But rather than attempt to change his wayward son's stubborn mind, Thomas persuaded RLS to switch to studying law, luring him in with the offer of a very lucrative support allowance. RLS agreed, but again, he spent less time in the lecture halls than he did in the dive bars and pubs around Edinburgh's Old Town. He was called to the Scottish bar at 25, though he would never once practice law in his life and immediately fled to France for a holiday. RLS was still changing as a young man, coming into his own and breaking away from the conventions that had been laid out for him by his well-meaning but very traditional parents. His relationship with his father was already on thin ice after the redirection of his university studies. Now, it was about to suffer an irreparable blow. RLS renounced Christianity and declared himself an atheist to his parents. An argument broke out and the family broke apart. Thomas and Isabella severed all ties with their heretical son. At 22, RLS went to visit a relative in Suffolk, England. Here he met Sidney Colvin, a literary critic who became somewhat of a literary advisor, and Fanny Sitwell, a scandalous woman of society. She was a recently separated mother of one and 12 years older than RLS. This triangle of friends grew very close, but RLS was especially drawn to Fanny. She and he spent long hours together, sitting under trees, his head on her knee, her hand stroking his hair. By all accounts, RLS was in love, or at least lust. Unfortunately, Sydney was already courting Fanny, but this didn't stop RLS from keeping up a romantic correspondence to her behind his new friend's back, perhaps trying to win her for himself. No physical affair is documented anywhere, so it is likely that after some time, their feelings dissolved back into friendship. Fanny and Sydney eventually married, but the couple remained close to RLS. Despite losing in love, RLS gained a great friend in Sydney, who went on to champion him in London's literary circles. RLS's health started to fail again. He had lost weight, he couldn't sleep, and his face twitched with a nervous tick his doctor prescribed a few months' stay alone on the French Riviera in the resort town of Menton. It was a popular destination for those suffering from tuberculosis, who found the sea and mountain air helped clear their lungs and improve their symptoms. Come the new year, and now 23, RLS decided to stop in at Paris on his way back home to Edinburgh. For someone so famously ill, he had a hell of a good time in the City of Lights. He fell in love with the artistic communities, spending long, lazy days in Montmartre cafes and long, late nights in Bohemian bars and bistros, hanging out with a circle of carefree creatives, many of them painters and fellow writers, who had also flocked to Paris for a dose of culture and inspiration. RLS was right at home in France. He spoke the language well and made a point of dropping into the country many times throughout the rest of his life. Often en route to some other destination. Around this time, the charismatic young RLS made another close friend and collaborator out of W.E. Henley, a British poet, playwright, journalist, critic, and editor. He is most remembered today for his incredible poem Invictus. It is not very long, only four stanzas, and ends with the often quoted declaration
1: I'm the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul.
0: Like RLS, Henley's life had been plagued by sickness and pain. He suffered from tuberculosis of the bone, and as a teenager, had to have his left leg amputated and replaced with a wooden leg. RLS later based his famous peg-legged Treasure Island character, Long John Silver, on Henley. The two met in an Edinburgh hospital in 1875. RLS was 24, Henley 25. The older man pushed the younger to constantly hone his craft, to be the best writer he could be. Henley was like a brother and wanted to see RLS succeed. It was through his decade-long friendship with Henley that RLS eventually landed the deal to publish Treasure Island in 1883. Sadly, their friendship was not to last. Though the intensity and specific details of their falling out vary from source to source, most signs point to the likelihood that, what else? A woman came between them. At 26, while staying in an artist colony outside Paris, RLS met and fell for another woman named Fanny. This one a decade older than him. Fanny Vandergrift Osborne was an American, quote, new woman who'd fled with her young children to France to study art leaving behind her philandering, gambling, civil war vet husband in the Wild West. She was feisty, intelligent and headstrong, and knew how to shoot a revolver and roll her own cigarettes. She painted and wrote magazine articles to support herself and her kids. She'd not long ago lost her third child, a boy named Harvey, to an illness. Grief-stricken and broken in health, the bereaved mother took her two surviving children to the peaceful little village of grez sur One night, Fanny attended a dinner party at an inn popular among artists. A young man approached from the outside. It was RLS, and he later admitted he fell in love at first sight when he saw Fanny in the lamplight through the open window. In one letter home, and showing signs of recovering from bereavement, Fanny wrote, quote, There is a young Scotchman here, a Mr. Stevenson, who looks at me as though I were a natural curiosity. He never saw a real American girl before, and he says I act and talk as though I came out of a book, an American book. He is such a nice looking ugly man, and I would rather listen to him talk than read the most interesting book I ever saw. We sit in the little green arbor after dinner, drinking coffee and talking till late at night. Nothing really happened at first, even in this most romantic part of the world, but within a year, Fanny and RLS became lovers. Shockingly, in 1878, just over a year into their affair, Fanny was forced to return to California when her husband threatened to cut her off financially. It was a matter of choosing between a heated, unconventional affair with an aspiring author, who had little to his name, or an unhappy marriage that could support her and her children. Fanny chose the latter. RLS, broken-hearted and left behind in Edinburgh, found solace in his two loves of travel and writing. He was inspired like never before and published numerous short stories and essays. In 1879, exactly a year after being dumped, RLS received a desperate and mysterious telegram from Fanny the telegram no longer exists, but whatever it contained drove RLS to throw caution to the wind, pack up his things, and within a week, against the advice of almost everyone around him, set sail for the Americas. On board, stowed away in his cabin, RLS wrote, quote,
1: I'm in fair spirits, but a little bit off my nut.
0: Indeed, this transatlantic journey almost killed him. He arrived in San Francisco, California with one foot in the grave. The newly divorced Fanny made it her mission to nurse him back to health so they could marry. Given Fanny's age, marital status, and, well, Americanism, Fanny was not an immediate hit with RLS's family, but her charm and personality is thought to have won them over. If there was one good thing Fanny did for RLS, it was to reconnect him with his parents, particularly his father, Thomas, she helped the men to patch up their relationship. The reconciliation was not without its perks. Now, fully approving of the marriage and concerned about their son's ill health, RLS's parents agreed to support the newlyweds with a generous yearly stipend. Later, RLS would write, quote,
1: I think my marriage was the best move I've ever made in my life.
0: RLS and Fanny soon returned to Scotland. Getting the approval of his friends for his marriage was another matter. Fanny was sort of like the literary version of Yoko Ono. She came along and broke up the old gang. RLS's best friend, Henley, was a particularly hard case. He had a contempt for American culture and disliked Fanny's mannerisms and influence over her much younger husband. He openly stated that the RLS he knew and loved never returned from America. Fanny didn't do herself any favours either. She was fiercely protective of her husband's health and discouraged friends from visiting whenever RLS fell ill. The worst came in the late 1880s, when Henley, not unreasonably, accused Fanny of plagiarism when she published a short story. The friendship between Henley and RLS never fully recovered. The years following RLS's marriage to Fanny were marked by ill health and strained friendships, but also by incredible literary achievements. Three years into their marriage, Treasure Island was published. It wasn't RLS's first novel, but it was the novel that put his name in lights. It was an instant bestseller, and though generally thought of as a children's adventure book, many critics point out that, just like its author, There is more to Treasure Island than meets the eye, calling it a deeply subversive story of betrayal and divided loyalties, which deserves close reading. Now we come to the big year, 1885, the year RLS wrote The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Of all his published works, none are arguably more complex, misunderstood, revolutionary and more talked about than Jekyll and Hyde. The legend around the book's inception is well known. The plot came to 34-year-old RLS in an alleged cocaine-induced nightmare one autumn night while at his home in Bournemouth, South England. His cries of terror caused his concerned wife to rouse him. He questioned her, quote, Why did
1: you wake me? I was dreaming a fan bogey tale.
0: The next morning, he rose with the dawn and began immediate work on what was to be his most famous book. Over three days, RLS cranked out the first draft of Jekyll and Hyde at a staggering length of 30,000 words. That's an average of 10,000 words a day. He warned his family he was not to be interrupted under any circumstance, even if the house was on fire. On the third day, having completed the story, RLS bound down the stairs to read the first draft aloud to his wife and stepson by the fire and didn't get the reaction he had hoped, at least not from Fanny. She objected to the story's sensationalism and its lack of allegory, a device esteemed by the literary world at the time. She felt the shilling Shocker style of novel was not worthy of his talents and probably wouldn't lead to the kind of success he'd experienced from Treasure Island. In a letter to a friend at the time, she dismissed the manuscript as, quote, utter nonsense. The couple quarreled. The manuscript ended up in the fire. Though it is still unclear whether it was Fenny or RLS himself who burnt it. RLS then spent the next three days furiously rewriting, again pouring out another 30,000 words. This is how the legend goes anyway. And while it is impossible to know exactly what happened during those six autumn days in Bournemouth, we do know the immediate impact the book had. An astounding 40,000 copies were sold in Britain in the first six months. RLS would later claim it was the worst thing he ever wrote, but it catapulted him into worldwide fame. It is a thoroughly modern multifaceted book that grapples with a variety of themes from identity, friendship, morality, and as essayist Kevin Williamson points out, even drug use. Williamson goes as far as to call it, quote,
1: The first fictional work of the chemical age.
0: It is difficult to ignore the parallels between the mysterious unnamed powders the respectable Dr. Jekyll uses to transform into the monstrous Mr. Hyde, and the increasingly popular wonder drug that had gone into commercial production overdrive from 1880 onward. Once RLS and his novel are placed into historical context, says Williamson, the circumstantial evidence becomes overwhelmingly in favour of the book being inspired by cocaine-induced fevers, more so than a single nightmare. Unlike the next author we'll be talking about, RLS was unwilling to talk about his drug use, and in a letter to a friend around the time, deemed it unimportant and irrelevant to his creative process. That might be his thoughts on the matter, but our natural curiosity as readers and fans cannot be swept away so easily. The same year he wrote Jekyll and Hyde, the Journal of the American Medical Association confirms RLS did indeed undergo cocaine therapy after suffering a hemorrhage. This was not at all unusual for the time. Leading up to the 20th century, cocaine was mixed into everything, from Coca-Cola to wines to medicinal tonics large mail-order companies offered pocket-sized cocaine kits that included a hypodermic syringe and a vial. It is highly likely RLS used such a kit. At least once, he professed an affection for the drug, particularly when administered via injection. But his dependence on medicinal cocaine in no way detracts from his incredible literary feats, especially when you consider he reached his creative peak at probably one of the lowest points of his health. Fanny herself put it best, saying that an invalid in my husband's condition of health should have been able to perform the manual labour alone of putting 60,000 words on paper in six days seems almost incredible. RLS took to the South Seas for the final years of his short life and brought his family along for the ride. He found his health completely restored as he bounced between ports across the Pacific cruising between Hawaii, the Gilbert Islands, New Caledonia, Tahiti, New Zealand, Australia, and many more. These were probably the happiest and healthiest years of his life, and he was writing and publishing all the while. He eventually settled in Samoa in his early 40s and became an active figure in the Samoan community. He developed an incredible bond with the Samoan people. They often consulted him for advice and invited him to participate in local politics they gave him an affectionate nickname, Tuzitala, which means Writer of Tales. In 1894, RLS commenced work on what many believe is his masterpiece, The Weir of Hermiston. It was a tale rich in psychological characterizations, masterful description, and even by today's standards, some of the most beautiful prose of the English language. Tragically, RLS never got to finish it. In the days following a huge island feast to celebrate his 44th birthday, Arles died of a cerebral hemorrhage, a type of stroke caused when an artery bursts in the brain. He was on the porch of his Samoan home, having a conversation with Fanny and struggling to open a bottle of wine when he collapsed. Overnight, the Samoans cleared a path to the top of a nearby mountain and laid Arles to rest in a spot that overlooked the sea. RLS died just six years before the dawn of the 20th century, the century which would see the horror genre perpetuated and expanded almost entirely by a single man, Stephen King, who still, even today, remains unmatched in his abilities to simultaneously scare and entertain readers. But before we move on to Stephen King, allow me to read a short excerpt from The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. This comes from the final chapter, where Dr. Jekyll details how it felt to transform into Mr. Hyde. The most racking pangs succeeded, a grinding in the bones, deadly nausea, and a horror of the spirit that cannot be exceeded at the hour of birth or death. Then, these agonies began swiftly to subside, and I came to myself, as if out of a great sickness. There was something strange in my sensations. Something indescribably new, and from its very novelty, incredibly sweet. I felt younger, lighter, happier in body. Within, I was conscious of a heady recklessness. A current of disordered sensual images running like a millrace in my fancy. A solution of the bonds of obligation an unknown but not an innocent freedom of the soul. I knew myself, at the first breath of this new life, to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my original evil. And the thought, in that moment, braced and delighted me like wine. Stephen King was born in 1947 in Maine, in the northeast of the United States to a relatively poor family. In contrast to RLS, Stephen lived what he called a, quote, peasants' existence. He never went to bed with an empty stomach, but the family home lacked indoor plumbing and therefore used a privy as a toilet and drew water as needed from a nearby well. Making matters worse, Stephen's father, Donald, a merchant marine, abandoned the family when Stephen was a toddler. As Stephen tells it, his father literally said he was going out to the store for a pack of cigarettes. He didn't take anything with him, and he never returned. Stephen speaks openly when asked about his father in interviews, and sometimes even makes light of it, saying, quote,
1: That was in 1949, and none of us have heard of the bastard since. I guess it must have been an obscure brand of cigarettes.
0: Stephen's mother, Nellie Ruth Pillsbury, now a single mother, never spoke of her husband again. Nor did she ever complain, though she was left to provide for the family under great financial strain. She spread herself between several low-paying jobs, and to her great sadness had little time left over for her young sons. Stephen was a keen reader from an early age. His imagination was one of the few tools of fun he had at his disposal. He discovered a trunk of books that had belonged to his father, and tore through them. Some of his favourites included H.P. Lovecraft, Ray Bradbury, and even Robert Louis Stevenson. At the age of four, Stephen witnessed a horrifying accident. He was playing with another neighbourhood kid near a railway track when the kid was struck by an approaching train. Stephen has no memory of what happened. It was his mother who told him about the incident years later. According to Ruth, Stephen returned home that day white with shock and refusing to speak. The details of the event are vague due to Stephen's lack of memory and his mother's gap in knowledge. Ruth never found out if Stephen directly witnessed the accident or just its aftermath. All she knew was that the kid who was struck by the train was picked up off the tracks in pieces and carried away in a wicker basket. Still reading books, and now hungrily devouring horror and sci-fi movies, Stephen developed a morbid imagination, and thanks to constant bullying at school, a suppressed sense of rage. He says he was a, quote, Fat kid, "...poorly uncoordinated, always the last picked for school sport teams." But Stephen was no nerdy prefect either. At 12 years old, he found himself in hot water, when teachers discovered he had been writing and selling sci-fi and adventure stories to classmates. With his brother's help, he printed them in his basement and sold them for a quarter a copy. The principal got a hold of a copy and, though we don't know its contents, we know the principal was not impressed. Stephen was made to return all profits and sent home from school in disgrace. Despite the trouble, only two years later, Stephen was back in the self-publishing business this time distributing a satiric newspaper creatively titled The Village Vomit, which roasted several of the teachers at his main high school. After school, he worked eight-hour shifts at a mill, bagging loose fabric, then went home to do homework. He was also sending stories into magazines, but didn't get a single one published until he was 18. No doubt, Stephen was academically capable. He won a scholarship to the University of Maine. A dream come true for Stephen's mother, who had never had such an opportunity in her own life, but hoped for such an opportunity for her sons. Like his older brother, Stephen went off to college and excelled. One of the motivating forces driving his grades higher was the looming threat of the draft during the Vietnam War. If a young, healthy man fell below a certain grade point average, lost his scholarship, dropped out of college, or never even attended college, he almost certainly fell into the war machine. Unlike so many of the kids from the poverty belt of America, Stephen felt grateful to have avoided the US military roundup. It was in the University of Maine Library where Stephen met the love of his life, fellow student Tabitha Spruce. She was one of eight children from a modest Catholic family. She was headstrong and outspoken and also harbored dreams of writing books of her own. Some commentators such as Harlan Ellison say that although Stephen is the more successful and prolific author, Tabitha's writing carries with it a quality of kindness and humanity, and in some ways is far more mature. Tabitha had no plans to sit back and be a trophy wife standing in the shadow of a husband. In fact, when Stephen asked her to marry him, she originally told him she needed to think about it overnight. The next morning, she said yes, And in 1971, the same year Stephen graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in English, the couple were married. Unfortunately, it was around this time also that Stephen began heavily drinking. His alcoholism can be traced back to harmless, even humorous beginnings, when he was arrested at 22 for stealing traffic cones. He explains that while driving home after a hard night of drinking Long Island iced teas, he struck a traffic cone. It bounced up under his car and tore off the muffler. He says, quote,
1: With a drunk's logic, I decided to cruise around town, slowly, safely, sanely, and pick up all the cones, every single one. The following day, I would present them, along with my dead muffler, at the town office in a display of righteous anger.
0: Every Friday afternoon, a good friend of Stevens would turn up at his home with a Doors record in one hand and a six-pack in the other, and the two men would spend the night pulling a, quote, horror show. This meant getting absolutely legless. They'd drink and listen to This Is The End, My Friend, and as the sun went down on the land, the sun went down on their sobriety. It was probably the only real downtime Stephen had. Tabitha gave birth to two children in quick succession, a daughter, Naomi, and a son, Joseph. A short time later, they added a third child to their brood, Owen. Stephen, much like his own mother, had to spread himself thin across multiple jobs to support his family. He worked as an English teacher, but the measly salary meant there wasn't a cent left to spare. During summer breaks, he worked in an industrial laundry, sweating out the weeks among soiled linens and headache-inducing chemicals. Stephen and his family lived in a double-wired trailer and drove round town in a rust-bucket Buick, barely held together by wire and duct tape. And still, they were only just scraping by. Their living circumstances were worse than what Stephen had grown up in. He and his wife were the working poor. But instead of giving up, Stephen did the only thing he knew best – He borrowed his wife's typewriter and sat himself down at a kid's desk jammed between the washer and dryer inside their little trailer and tapped away on the keys as though his life depended on it. Because it sort of did. Sometimes one of his stories would be bought by a men's magazine like Playboy and Cavalier, and he'd get a small check in the mail to tie them over for another fortnight. Sometimes all he got in the mail was a rejection slip. At one point, Things got so bad that Tabitha had to go to a distribution centre to put her hand out for donated commodities supplied as part of the government's surplus food programme. Tabitha was embarrassed. She didn't want her parents finding out that she and Stephen had resorted to food donations. But she stuck by her husband's side, keeping him motivated to write by telling him to, quote, Think up a monster! Think up a monster! One day in 1973, Stephen started writing a story about a timid, tormented girl named Carrie White, a homely high school outcast who discovers that her newfound surge of pubescent hormones come hand in hand with telekinesis. The story was unlike anything Stephen had attempted before. It was written from a female perspective and took on feminine experiences such as menstruation, birth, and male objectification. 26-year-old Stephen was intimidated and full of self-doubt. After getting down three single-spaced pages of Carrie's story, he crumpled them up in frustration and threw them in the bin. The next day, Tabitha rescued them. She was eager to see what her husband had been working on. She brushed off the cigarette ashes and straightened out the pages and began to read. When her husband later returned home from work, she brought him the pages and urged him to continue. Tabitha offered to guide her husband through the world of women, providing advice on how the female characters should be molded and how the famous shower scene at the beginning of the novel should play out. Nine months later, the final manuscript of Carrie was complete. 30 publishers rejected it. Then, one afternoon, Stephen was grading papers in the teacher's lounge when a call came through. It was Tabitha. Bill Thompson, editor at Doubleday Publishing, had sent the Kings a telegram. Doubleday wanted to buy Carrie. Stephen had finally broken through. He was going to be a published author. At home, he and Tabitha celebrated. It was welcome news, but Stephen's life didn't radically improve overnight. The $2,500 advance from Doubleday helped insofar as it enabled Stephen to move his family out of the trailer into a small home and purchase a shiny new Ford Pinto. But otherwise, little else changed. Carrie only sold 13,000 copies as a hardback, a tepid number that convinced Stephen to grudgingly sign on for another year of high school teaching and start work on a new novel. Life went back to normal. Carrie, it seemed, by the first half of 1974, had run its course. Until another phone call came, and this one really did change everything. It was Bill Thompson from Doubleday again. He told Stephen, who was home alone at the time, to sit down. The paperback rights to carry had sold. Stephen was $200,000 richer. Stephen's legs wobbled and gave out. He sat on the floor, shaking with excitement. When he finally composed himself after winning the literary lottery, he decided he wanted to go out and buy his wife something luxurious, something unforgettable to celebrate. It was a Sunday, and every shop in downtown Bangor, Maine, was closed, except for the drugstore. So Stephen bought the best thing he could find a hairdryer. Stephen quit teaching, quit the laundry. Tabitha quit her part time job peddling pastries at Dunkin' Donuts. Three years after Carrie was published, and during a trip to Manhattan, Stephen went out looking for a- another gift for Tabitha. He went to the swanky Cartier store on Fifth Avenue and bought his wife something he couldn't afford to give her six years earlier an engagement ring. The time between 1973 and 1974 was bittersweet. It was around this time Carrie was written and picked up, and it was the time Stephen's mother, Ruth, died from uterine cancer. He and Tabitha and their young children moved to southern Maine to be closer to the rapidly declining 59-year-old. Thankfully, Ruth lived long enough to see the success of her son's debut novel, but she never quite got to enjoy the fruits of it. By the time Ruth got her hands on an early edition of Carrie, she was already on her deathbed. Stephen's dependency on alcohol only increased during this intensely emotional period. He drank Budweiser like it was water, and admitted to downing an entire six-pack every time he was about to go visit his mother in hospital. Ruth passed away in the presence of her two sons in February 1974. Stephen gave the eulogy at the funeral, and later, looking back on it, he said, quote,
1: I think I did a pretty good job, considering how drunk I was.
0: Budweiser wasn't Stephen's only vice by the time he reached the 1980s. The decade announced itself in a fluorescent explosion of new wave sound, outrageous fashions, excess wealth and unabashed consumerism. Right when families across America were tuning into MTV for the first time, Stephen was tuning into just how popular and famous he'd become. Since Kerry, he began publishing at least one novel per year. The books included Salem's Lot, The Shining, The Stand, The Dead Zone, and Firestarter. Three of his novels were adapted to the screen, the two most notable being Brian De Palma's Carrie with Sissy Spacek, and Stanley Kubrick's The Shining with major star Jack Nicholson.
1: Come and play with us, Stanley. Forever
0: ever, and ever. By the 1980s, Stephen was a full-blown cultural phenomenon. Anything churned out with his name on it was guaranteed to be a success, financially if not critically. In describing his catapult to fame, Stephen said it was like having America open up to him like an extravagant banquet where only a fortunate few are invited to dine, and everything is free. He finished the metaphor by saying, quote,
1: What they don't tell you is that you're the final course.
0: It was a friend who first introduced Stephen to cocaine at a party, and he was instantly hooked. He said, quote,
1: One snort and cocaine owned me, body and soul.
0: It was the perfect counterbalance to beer. Beer was a downer, coke was an upper. He came to believe it was some kind of magic ingredient, an on-switch he needed to keep up momentum. Soon, his greatest fear was being unable to write without cocaine and beer. So he never tried to sober up, never attempted to come out from under what he considered a necessary creative cloud of drugs and alcohol. During these frenzied late-night riding marathons, he did so much coke that sticking cotton up his nose was the only way he could prevent blood from dripping onto his typewriter. There are entire novels he doesn't fully remember writing because he was so strung out, like Cujo and the critically panned Tommyknockers. All the while he was churning out these massive hits and building up a fortune and saturating the marketplace, Stephen wasn't alone. He was surrounded by agents and lawyers and publishers, yet not one of them seemed to notice their Golden Goose's personal disintegration, or seemed to care. Stephen might have drank and snorted himself into an early grave if his concerned wife hadn't staged an intervention in 1986, pulling him out of the gutter the way she'd pulled the pages of Carrie out of the trash more than a decade earlier. Sick of all the mornings she'd woken to find her husband asleep in a puddle of vomit at his desk, Tabitha confronted Stephen with all the drinking and drug paraphernalia she'd found around the house. Cocaine spoons, bags of white powder, empty beer cans and empty cigarette cartons. She gathered round their children, extended family members and close friends for support and delivered Stephen an ultimatum. If he didn't get sober, she and the kids would leave him to self-destruct on his own. Stephen agreed to go to rehab. The intervention helped Stephen in more ways than one. As he adjusted to sobriety, he found he could still write, and write well. A crisp, clear-headedness emerged in his style, and he began to produce some of his most insightful, beautiful work to date. His stories even started to appear in The New Yorker, an extraordinary feat for any writer let alone one whom critics often dismissed as frivolous and sometimes outright insulted as inadequate. Closing in on the 90s and maintaining his sobriety, Stephen soon released the award-nominated novel The Green Mile, Offbeat, The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, End of the World Saga, The Stand, and plenty more. He was constantly defying reader expectations, dipping in and out of different genres and trying on different styles. His bibliography got diverse, a hard-boiled murder mystery novel, a time travel thriller hinged on the JFK assassination, a sci-fi epic about a town sealed under a giant force field, and a horror fantasy about a post-apocalyptic society that survives a supercharged biological warfare virus. In 1990, one of the best Stephen King film adaptations was released. There is nothing to worry about. You're going to be just fine. I'm your
1: number one fan.
0: Misery stars Kathy Bates as a former nurse who rescues her favourite author from a car crash, only to hold him captive at her home and force him to write the kind of story she wants to read. In a terrifying case of life imitating art, five months after the Misery film release, an obsessed Stephen King fan broke into the King family house in Maine. Tabitha, who was home alone, encountered the intruder in the kitchen around dawn. The intruder claimed to have a bomb and accused Stephen of stealing the plot for misery. Tabitha fled to a neighbor's house and the police were called. The man was later identified as Eric Keane, a 26-year-old schizophrenic man from Texas out on parole. Security at the King household ramped up, but that didn't deter future fans from climbing the gates of the old Victorian mansion. One year after the incident with Keane, 28-year-old Stephen Lightfoot was arrested outside the King residence, suffering from delusional beliefs. He claimed to have discerned through coded messages that Stephen King was the real murderer of John Lennon. In 2003, an illegal immigrant from the Czech Republic was arrested for harassment after leaving deranged, threatening notes in the King's mailbox. Stephen almost didn't live to see the new millennium but it wasn't alcoholism, addiction, or a demented fan that brought Stephen closest to death. It was an afternoon stroll through the woods near his lakeside summer house and an errant minivan with a distracted driver at the wheel. Stephen liked to walk four miles every day to clear his mind and collect his thoughts. He always carried a book, as he was on this day in 1999 but he wasn't reading it the moment the Dodge van came over the crest of the hill ahead of him, driving on the shoulder, not the road. Man and vehicle collided. Stephen was thrown 14 feet, over four meters, into the air. The next thing he remembers is waking up in a ditch and looking down at his body to find it covered in blood. His bottom half looked as though it had been screwed on sideways. Stephen was rushed to the nearest hospital but his injuries from the impact were so serious that doctors decided he'd be better treated at a separate medical facility with more experienced surgeons. So he was transferred by helicopter. Steven's right leg was broken in at least nine places. It would have needed amputation if it wasn't for a fast acting trauma team. His right knee was split almost directly down the middle. He fractured his right hip. His spine was chipped in eight places four ribs were broken. The flesh of his chest was stripped raw. The gash in his forehead needed up to 30 stitches. Stephen looked like a character straight out of one of his gory horror stories, and it's a miracle he survived. Tabitha purchased the dented van that almost killed her husband, so that it wouldn't end up on eBay as some kind of morbid Stephen King memorabilia. Five weeks after the accident, Still in a wheelchair and propped up by cushions, Stephen went back to writing. You might call writing Stephen's healthiest, most productive addiction. He needed to write the way he once needed cocaine and beer. Stephen continues to strike fear into the hearts of readers even today with his work recently undergoing a popular resurgence in the wake of the release of the 2017 film, It, starring Bill Skarsgård as the terrifying shape-shifting clown Pennywise. The big-screen adaptation was an astronomical success, right from the get-go, breaking records for the highest opening weekend for a horror film ever. Stephen enjoyed the film so much he agreed to do a cameo in the 2019 sequel. Critical appreciation for Stephen King's work has built up over the years, just as it did for Robert Louis Stevenson. In 2003, Stephen was awarded the highly prestigious National Book Foundation Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters. He was finally receiving the sort of respect from the literary establishment that had eluded him for so long. He was finally being recognised for his labours. Unlike RLS, Stephen lived long enough to see and enjoy his critics about-face and to this day, he continues to live with Tabitha in an eccentric red Victorian mansion in his home state of Maine. The following extract is from The Shining. Danny, or Doc Torrance, the six-year-old protagonist of the story, is outside exploring the snowy grounds of the haunted Overlook Hotel, where his family is residing for the winter, when he gets trapped inside a creepy concrete tunnel. It is widely considered one of the scariest passages of all of King's novels. For a moment, Danny's brain froze in utter panic, and he could not think. Then, as if from far off, he heard his daddy telling him that he must never play at the Stovington dump, because sometimes stupid people hold old refrigerators off to the dump without removing the doors. And if you got in one and the door happened to shut on you, there was no way to get out. You would die in the darkness. You wouldn't want a thing like that to happen to you, would you, Doc? No, Daddy. But it had happened, his frenzied mind told him. It had happened. He was in the dark. He was closed in. And it was as cold as a refrigerator. And something is in here with me. His breath stopped in a gasp. An almost drowsy terror stole through his veins. Yes. Yes, there was something in here with him. Some awful thing the Overlook had saved for just such a chance as this. Maybe a huge spider that had burrowed down under the dead leaves. Or a rat. Or maybe the corpse of some little kid that had died here on the playground. Had that ever happened? Yes. He thought maybe it had. He thought of the woman in the tub, the blood and brains on the wall of the presidential suite, of some little kid, its head split open from a fall from the monkey bars or a swing, crawling after him in the dark, grinning, looking for one final playmate in its endless playground, forever. In a moment, he would hear it coming. At the far end of the concrete ring, Denny heard the stealthy crackle of dead leaves as something came for him on its hands and knees. At any moment, he would feel its cold hand close over his ankle. Thanks for listening to Hollywood. This episode was written, narrated, and edited by me, Key Whiskey. Special thanks to my guest, Jared Doyle, for voicing Robert Louis Stevenson and Stephen King. Please visit our website, holywordpodcast.com, to find show notes, a list of sources, and more information. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, subscribe, and spread the word. Join me next time for another dive into the lives of history's greatest storytellers. Good night.